0: So as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we were in these passages on Tuesday night, verse by verse. And chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is very famous because it's where the great King David falls into sin, where he's in the time of spring when kings go to war. He doesn't go to war. He stays home in the palace, and then um, he sees Uriah's wife bathing, and he calls up to the palace, and he has a sexual relationship with her, so that's adultery and then uh, it's as if he could get away with it, and then she sends notice that she's pregnant. That's a major issue. So he comes up with the idea that Uriah, the, the husband, is Uriah the Hittite, so he's going to bring Uriah home from the battle because he did go to war in the springtime with Joab, and they're besieging and fighting the men of Amnon. And so Uriah gets called home, but he won't go be with his wife intimately, So that presents a problem for David. He's like, oh, my great plan just didn't work. So then he gets him intoxicated, totally stone drunk, and that doesn't work. So he's trying to cover his sin, so that doesn't work. And then he says, well, I have no choice but to have him killed in combat. So it's going from bad to worse, which so often sin is when we don't deal with it. And so he sends a note by Uriah in Uriah's hands. That is his death sentence. It's delivered to Joab. And then Joab sends Uriah to the front of the battle in a besieging the city, and Uriah, along with some other brave men of Israel, die in, in that engagement. Joab sends the note back, like, hey, it went down that way, and that's the way it is. And remember, Joab, Joab is ruthless, and he just goes along with whatever's happening. So that's just how it happened. So it's David's secret that Joab somewhat understands. But Joab's the kind of guy that he's just going to do whatever needs to be done. And that's where we left off in chapter 11. As we come to chapter 12, we pick up the text from there. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take From his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your keeping. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you so much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. Have killed him with the sword of the people of Amnon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before you and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun or like literally in the daytime. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is to be born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his own house. Now, the next ten verses or so, David pleads for the life of the, the child. The child's born, he fasts, the child doesn't make it, the child dies. And so from that, we pick up in verse 24 a couple more bonus verses that shed light on this whole story. So after that happened, after the child died from the adultery with Bathsheba, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he went into her and lay with her. So obviously sexual relationship there. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. This really is an amazing story. Most of us are familiar with it, and we're more familiar with it for what stands out, the profound level of sin of David, the great man with the heart after God, and how far we can fall and just how bad things can go when we make bad decisions and they become compounded. Even, for example, with King Saul, and his sin was not to wipe out you know, Agag the Amalekite, and yet he's rejected by the Lord and totally cast off. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's like, oh, you didn't wipe out the bad guys. But like, yet God rejected Saul for that thing, that event, and Saul lost all grace and no restoration. But David commits adultery with another man's wife. There's different types of adultery. This is a woman that was married to another man. Then he has the man murdered. So like on the Ten Commandments, we all know, those are two of the big ones. They're addressed in their Macro topic. They're not hard to understand, and David was guilty of both. Yet he finds grace and forgiveness and restoration from the Lord. There's, there's a whole study on a contrast between King Saul and King David. And as you go through the Bible, you'll find people who commit sin, that is, to fall short of God's glory, to rebel against the Lord, who commit sin and are sorry for the effects of the sin, but not really sorry about for sin before the Lord and and remorse before the Lord. And then you find other people who commit sin and find great grace and forgiveness from their sin. It's, It's one of those paradoxical things in scripture where like how Jacob could constantly sin and find grace. And then Esau, he pleads for his birthright back, but it's too late and he found no place for repentance, going back to the book of Genesis. And this is what I say about when it comes to sin and faith and repentance, that we have, a, we have this self-determination when we give our life to Christ to recognize our sin and failure and to repent from it and be restored. And we, we receive all that grace like these songs we were singing. Like the song set from Scott tonight was really like songs like you'd, we'd be singing them to David right now when you look at this text. Like David come to Worship Generation tonight and say, man, I'm, I'm trying to go forward with the Lord. Can you put together a song set for me? Yeah, we just sang it. That song set was a song set and Scott doesn't even know where I'm at in the text. So that's just the Lord doing what he does here at Worship Generation. And yet some people, they, they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to make it right and go forward. And, and The way forward with the Lord from sin and failure is always repentance and faith. And it's the next thing. God always has a plan for a way to go forward from our sins and failures. And we all have sins and failures. And obviously we know the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you have a small sin, like you're a little kid and you tell a little lie to your parents, like your parents said, you clean up your room and you say no, but you know you're lying, you're guilty and you're a sinner. And we can think like back to our childhood. Maybe some of us would know that. like That's lying. That's lying to our parents. That's sin. And that just proves we're born in sin and that's a sinful nature. But we also know like a violent criminal or, or someone who do something like David, where you committed adultery and murder... Those are major sins, and society recognizes that when a, a child tells a lie, although they're guilty before God and it's proof of their sin nature, society draws a distinction from someone who commits adultery and murders somebody, right? We even have the court of law. We have a misdemeanor and, and a felony. We, we draw those distinctions, and we know with God to be guilty of one part is to be guilty of all. So we're all considered guilty before the Lord as we sang the songs about Jesus on the cross and, and our great high priest, whoever lives and reigns for us, if, if we have the, what seem to be the least sins, like little kids telling white lies, or the worst sins, like committing adultery and murdering people, we are equally guilty before God because to be guilty of one part is guilty of all. We understand that in the New Testament, correct, worship generation? We understand that. So the real issue, so our sins can have different effects. So in this story, we see that David, if we harmonize it with a couple of the Psalms, he talks about how his bones are rotting within him. This, this nine month period when Bathsheba was pregnant, so were some of his life. Because all the other afflictions he went through because of Saul pursuing him and the trials and tribulations, they were not self-inflicted. This is self-inflicted. And he's just figuring out, how am I going to resolve this? How can I? He's, he's brilliant. David's brilliant. He's, he's got a good plan. If you're trying to cover up sin, these are good plans. Like, these are well-thought-out plans. And the, the first one, oh, it could have worked, you know, it just, just it could have worked. But then for the next 40 years, if you're looking at this kid, and Uriah thinks it's his kid when it's David's kid. So it really wasn't going to work. But in the short term, it seemed like a good plan. And in the end, the plan to have Uriah executed seemed like a good plan. I mean, what's one mighty man dying in battle? Other mighty men died in battle. Ten, thirty thousand 30,000 soldiers died just the previous chapter before that when they're engaging the Syrian armies. People die in war all the time. But it was one of David's 30 mighty men, Uriah. So he is like a hall of famer. They're just... The only way forward with this was for the sin to be brought to a head, the consequences to be laid out, the conviction, well, the confrontation, the conviction uh, and the consequences and then the, the confession and correction and all the healing that would come from it. God loved David so much, he had to be confronted and he, and he had to be resolved. And here's something, too, about sin in our own life. When people, when we don't respond right away to being wrong, like you have a conflict with somebody or whatever, just just going in a bad way. If you don't stop it right then and there, it just gets worse. And so you you've seen in ministry, for example, Scott Cunningham here was tonight leading us in worship, and we've been serving the Lord together for 22 years, and he was a big guy for 20 years. And we see all kinds of people come, and they have a situation, and you say like, Hey, this is the resolution you need to confess, and you make this right. And if they do, they're blessed. But if they don't, it just gets worse and worse. And eventually, maybe still stay at the big church or find another church. And they never get it right. It's it's so important that we get it right. It's so important that God loves us enough to to bring the confrontation of the sin, the conviction of the sin, to bring the chastening with it so there's full correction and we can be healed. David passed on his experiences of being chastened by the Lord. And we can see Solomon in Proverbs 3, David's great son, who is mentioned here, beloved the Lord, he said not to despise the chasing of the Lord because it's proof of our sonship or our daughtership with the Lord. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And we say this so often, the only thing worse than being chastened by the Lord is not. Yes. Yeah. And it seemed like I could never get away with things when I was growing up, believing in God, but never, not really having the relationship. But like, I couldn't get away with things. I steal a bike, the next day someone steals my favorite surfboard. Huh. That's the chastening of the Lord. That's proof that I belonged to Heavenly Father. And aren't you glad we don't get away with things? We, we know. We know when, when the Lord's given us an adult chastening. And it's a good thing. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For it is proof of sonship. And it says in Hebrews that when we receive correction and chastening from the Lord, it produces holiness when we've been trained by it, and that we can grow and learn. We want to grow and go forward. Or as the Lord told me when I first went into ministry, of my fear of failure, because I failed in everything in life. And like it's one thing to fail, like in a relationship or as a pro surfer, quite another to fail God when you're serving God in the ministry. Like when everyone goes into ministry. Like, even to serve as a deacon or whatever, you had this idea, like, what if I fail, God? It's like, it's not what if, it's when you do and how you're going to handle it. So the Lord showed me in November of 1987 when he was calling me into ministry, failure is inevitable, growth is optional. That was the word of the Lord in November of 1987. Failure is inevitable, growth is optional. And I purpose at that time in my life, That as I went forward in ministry, and Jennifer and I were married four months later, that I wouldn't sulk in my failures and my sins and shortcomings, but I would try and grow and go forward from them. Which makes me think, of, for example, of great quarterbacks in football. And ladies, you may not follow me on this one, but please try. Uh, With quarterbacks in football, they're the guys who get the ball, you know, and they throw the ball. And the mentally tough quarterbacks, the great ones like Tom Brady, the greatest of all quarterbacks, is when they throw an interception, so someone from the other team catches that ball and intercepts it, how you respond to that, especially if it's one of your teammates' fault, shows a lot about you. And so some guys will throw an interception, and then they go to the sidelines, and they throw their helmet, and they kick their water cooler and all this stuff, and they come back, they throw another one, and they begin to melt down. And they're yelling at the people blocking for them, they're yelling at the wide receiver, and it's someone else's fault, and and they just don't get it. But the great ones, like Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers and some of these guys, he'll, Tom Brady would throw an interception and they could take it back for touchdown. And he just walks to the sideline and he's printing out the, he gets like the pictures, like the, you know, like the pictures, the aerial photos from like a drone. And he's, he's immediately looking at the defense, like what happened, like what, what was the misread there? What, he's, he's looking at what went wrong because he's gonna go back out there and he's still trying to win the game. In other words, he didn't check out and quit. He's looking at, like, what went wrong, what's our adjustments, and let's go forward, and let's win this game. Remember, the, this is St. Tom Brady. They were down 28-3 to 3 in the Super Bowl, the Falcons, about 10 years ago. And my son-in-law, Jacob, said, oh, this game is over. I go, and it's never over with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And they're going to come out, and they can win this game, and they won it. They won that game. When you come back from the 28-3 to 3 in the Super Bowl, largest deficit ever in the Super Bowl. And he almost did it to the Rams last year in the playoffs. He did the same thing almost. When he's with the Buccaneers, like that's how we want to be with the Lord. We have failures, we throw interceptions, we make mistakes, we forget the play. But like in Christ Jesus, what we want, we want to learn from it and and study the game film or the photos and figure out what it was and let's not do this again. Because they see insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? So let's failure is inevitable, growth is optional. So let's grow and go forward from our mistakes. So in this story, David. Is confronted by the Lord right up in his grill, as they say, with Nathan. Like, Nathan's his buddy. Like, sure, build the temple. Like, Nathan's my bro. Nathan's like, dude, you're the bad guy. You're it. He tells him a story, and David responds like, who's the man? And and again, it's so interesting because when people are in sin, they so often, we so often critique others for the very thing we're doing. And people get wound tight. And the things that upset them often are the things that they are doing. So David is just wound tight. His bones are drying within him. And then this thing happens with Nathan. He's like, oh, oh, who is the man? And Nathan's like, dude, it's you. Oh. This is the key moment when God's correcting us. When the Holy Spirit says, you're the woman, you're the man. This attitude, this response, these words, this action, this loss, these things, whatever, this theft, whatever it is, you're the one. Like, oh, my goodness, you're the one. And it's so important when Nathan the prophet is in our face or the Holy Spirit is convicting us. And, like, this is wrong. This is sin. And if we can't agree that this is sin, then we can't go forward because this is failure, and that's inevitable because the Bible tells us if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. So we're going to have—it's not like we wake up like, oh, let's wreck our life, but as we, as human beings, go forward— we are just a few bad decisions from wrecking our life. So we abide in Christ and we make good decisions and we grow and go forward. So we have to recognize correction. We, when we throw an intersection in our life, we can't go to the sidelines and go like, man, it's my boss, it's my wife, it's my husband, it's the kids, I'm gonna, ah. you know, you just You can't do that. It's the car in that lane. No, just don't take it personal. They're not mad at you, they're just selfish. And they think all four lanes belong to them. They're not out to get you. They didn't get on the 405. Like, I'm going to get you. They're just, they're just, it's their world. Don't take it personal. right? Like, just, we need to receive the correction the moment the Lord has given it to us. Through Nathan, the Holy Spirit, through Nathan. However it's coming, reading his word, the thought the quiet time where we clear our minds it's like, oh my goodness, I need to set that straight. We need to receive it. And it, with that in mind, this whole context, you know, God said, you broke my commandments. He's guilty. God says, yeah, there's consequences. You're going to be chastened. And your family's going to be affected. There's short-term, long-term consequences. And we talk about sin again. Little white lies for the little kids, the sin may not be that far-reaching. Adultery and murder as adults, that is very far-reaching. So there's consequences. Immediate, the baby's going to die. Long-term, your family, the sword's not going to depart from your family. And misdemeanor felony events in our life, how do we respond? How, what kind of sins they were? We're, most of us are enough in this room to know it, certain sins will cost you your job, your home, your family, child custody, everything. We are to fear sin and the whole idea of like even going after it. There is one good thing that can come from our failures and our sin is to be humbled by it. If our failures produce humility and you. Hum- Humiliation and humility in our hearts, it can work together for good, like Romans 8 says, like we were singing earlier, you make all things work together for good. The song we're singing was God. And like, how can anything good come from our sin? Well, believe it or not, because of the blood of Christ, the grace of the Lord. If there's humility on our part in our response and attitude to our failures, God will bring good things from it. He makes beauty from ashes. So David... So he's told the consequences, he's under the conviction, the standard was he violated God's word, and then when it's all said and done, he says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Just a simple confession, I have sinned against the Lord. Now our sins affect people, right, like we are just talking about it. But sin is always first and foremost against the Lord. The Lord's word is the standard. That's why I quote Romans 3 a lot, like God be true and every man a liar. Right, because God's word is true. We see an entire planet trying to change the standard of right and wrong. But we're in this crazy, insane time on planet Earth where, where it's all just muddled together. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word is absolute. He's exalted it above even his name. It's never going to change. So, the standard of right and wrong with sin, it's going to always be against his word. So, if it's sin, like in America, it's like, oh, this was sin in 1960, but it's not sin in 2020. Well, yes, it is. This was clear in 1990, but it's not clear at all in 2022. No, yes, it is. God is not a man. As Job said, and God is light, and Him is no moral darkness at all, and there's no shadow of turning. So sin and confession of sin isn't to please a community of people or the tribes so they don't get canceled or woked or doxed or something like they do in this generation. Sin is rebellion against God within our soul as a woman or a man before God. And David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51. So, in the context of what we just read historically in this text, we actually get almost like an epistle. Like when you read a letter by Paul, and it sheds light on the historical record in the book of Acts, So we have the historical record of 2 Samuel, what happened. But then we have a whole psalm dedicated to what happened. So let me read this to you, what David said. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We say, I wonder what David thought. We don't have to wonder what David thought. We have it right here. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That is as beautiful as a verse in the entire Bible. That is the man with a heart after God Putting forth such profound theology in simplicity and humility in his sins, I'll read again Psalm fifty-one verse four: "Against you and you only have I sinned. Sin affects human beings horizontally, but their offenses to God vertically. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So, no matter how much people want to remove the boundaries of right and wrong in our society." Oh, when we stand before the lord when the books are open there's no there's no redefining it it is what it is he said in verse 5 before behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me that's romans 3:23 all of sin were are born sinners behold you desire truth in inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you've broken may rejoice. See, he was, he was crushed within himself. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Like we said earlier, the only thing worse than being chastened, having Nathan show up and say you're the man, is have him not show up and say you're the man. Restore to me, verse 12, the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, that the God of my salvation... Deliver me from the guilt of my bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice. So he's like, it's not about going to church and doing this thing right now, or else I'd give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These O God you will not despise. So see, David understood that the real issue is to be humble and broken. And it's not about going to church or doing some do-good penance or whatever, like 50 Hail Marys or climb this mountain, swim this river, give this money or whatever. No, God owns everything. And he's not a robot. He's not artificial intelligence or an algorithm. God is personal. He's not the Father. And the best thing an earthly father, earthly mother can appreciate from their kids when they do wrong is sincere humility and repentance for their failure. Because that's the beauty of it all, when you can comfort them and restore them and, and build them up and help them go forward. Failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. So David recognized that he needed to confess his sin. And once we confess our sin before the Lord, we can begin to go forward. But we don't want to excuse it away and say, it's their fault, it's their fault. It's just... And I have found this to be true in my own life, and many of you understand this. If you say you're sorry nine out of ten times, it will usually get you out of trouble. In relationships where things happen and they go wrong, if you are sincerely sorry, you make it right with the Lord, and say to people that were affected, you're sorry, nine out of ten times you will usually find that it will make it right. Now, one in ten, there's nothing you can do about it. Some people won't live peaceably with you no matter what you do. But you'll know when you get there. Otherwise, go find where you can make things right. When Jesus was asked, what do we do to make things right? When John the Baptist was asked, what do we do to make things right? He said, go do this, go do that, and go do this. And that's part of confession is repentance is making straight the crooked path or making right things that we can. In David's case here, it was just like humility and receiving it. There's nothing more beautiful than a humble political leader, humble before God and broken before God because that woman, that man can be entrusted to lead lots of people in a good way but there's nothing worse than a proud arrogant leader who stumbles people in their pride and are deceived by their pride and even delusional often in their pride so it was very good for the nation of Israel that David he made the front page of the Jerusalem National Enquirer for this stuff but it was still really good for the people that he was truly repentant and it wasn't covered up so, so we see the importance of his confession. And he had the second thing that we see in his confession, because our confession, we talked about this earlier, but once we confess, that's, that's the way forward. That's the way forward. Once we confess before the Lord, that's the way forward. Because we can't go forward until we confess it. But that's the next thing. That's the, that's the next step. That's the next thing is confession. When you're convicted, you're held accountable to confess it. That is the next thing. But then after that, we see the beauty of the Lord because there's self-determination to either say we're sorry and repent or not. And God will hold us accountable for it. But then Nathan says there in verse 13, and Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. Isn't the most beautiful thing? That's just another way of saying what we're singing in these songs. Just another way, like Christ's blood on the cross, dying in our place. we we find forgiveness in Christ. There's no sin other than rejecting Christ that can't be forgiven. The blessing of the Holy Spirit is to reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit to confess our sins and be right with God. So as long as we're willing to confess our sins, we can be made right and can be forgiven. I've told the story in the past, but years ago I received a letter from a guy serving a life sentence for murdering his stepdad when he was 16. And he asked me, I listen to people on the radio, and I've listened to you on the radio. And I'm writing you because I feel like you will tell me the truth. Can I truly find forgiveness for killing my stepdad when I was 16? He was in his 30s at the time. I said, absolutely. I go, the blood of Jesus Christ covers that sin. I wrote him back. I said, you may never be allowed to be back in society because how society treats you is the decisions of the judges of men and women for the betterment of society. But I can guarantee you, in Jesus' name, that you can be forgiven. So far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, your sins the Lord has put away. David said, Bless is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Your sins the Lord has put away. See, we were singing earlier about not beating ourselves up and condemning ourselves. When Satan tempts me to despair, was the line in that hymn. And doesn't Satan tempt us to despair? In our failures, he tempts us to despair. When Satan tempts me to despair. And you know when you sing that song, that hymn? I've been singing that hymn the body of Christ for a couple hundred years. I mean, that song, that, song that, that hymn's been around a long time. Think of all the other people that sang that song in their Sunday morning church somewhere, even in different languages, like and and what, the, what they're how administered to them when Satan tends to despair, where that great high priest, Jesus Christ. The Lord has put away your sin. That is underlined in my Bible. I should probably highlight it when I highlight it when I get home. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord, part one. Part two, the Lord has put away your sin. Confession is followed by forgiveness and cleansing. And there in 1 John 8 and 9, we're told that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us. Because we have an advocate with the Father when we fall short, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he ever lives and intercedes for us like we sang during the worship set. So when Satan tempts us to despair. See, the devil knows this. If he can convince you and me, or anyone in Jesus' name, that we've committed a sin that can never be forgiven, then he, he's won. He's neutralized us from going forward with the things that God has for us, being effective for the Lord. He's just, he's, just, he's done a sin. And I learned early on in ministry, if I just don't quit, I'm gonna win. You strike down a righteous man a thousand times, a righteous woman, in faith they'll rise up again. So I just, my theology got really simple after seven years of passing on the East Coast. Just get up. Now some of you are from my timeline and you remember the Rocky movies. The Rocky movies were epic. That was during the peak of my career. Like i watch them over and over and over and over and over again. I the Tiger, you know, but they're like... Rocky, you knock him down. Didn't matter if it was Apollo Creed or Drago in the Russian Soviet Union. He gets back up. You get back up. You're like crawling back up. There's one Rocky and Creed's looking I'm like really, and he's like Rocky's getting back up. Like you just got to get back up. We just got to get back up. And you know, as long as we're willing to get up, Jesus is going to lift us up. He's going to lift us up. And was going to take us forward. The way forward is confession and forgiveness. We confess it, he forgives it. We confess it, we don't earn it. We confess it, he gives it. He pronounces it. He pronounces acquittal. He has the authority to forgive. Jesus has the authority to forgive all sin, and he's got the final say. So there's a perfect law with sin. God's law is absolutely perfect. It's perfect, and it, it's immutable and over the universe. But Christ on the cross is the judgment for all the transgressions against that law. And once we're in Christ, our failures are seen in Christ that he paid the price. It's like he paid the price. So the judge goes, guilty. Death, hell, separation, outer darkness, everything. But like we come to Christ, we're saved and and forgiven. And then we're going forward. It's like, oh, and... The devil's every day like, hey, he, he he did this today, she did this today, and you you here you're back in the courtroom again. I am a father. I'm sorry, I confess it, it's it's like acquitted. Go forward. The way forward, the way forward is confession, forgiveness and cleansing. To receive it. We have to receive it. And this this is very hard for us in the human experience because we like to earn things. Depending on how you're raised, especially like more religious oriented, you want to earn it like bad. Well, I was raised Catholic, right? So that were raised Catholic. When you went to confession, like the priest is over there. You're like, this is different, but at least he doesn't know who I am. So like, okay, yeah, and I did this and I did that. And they go, now, what do they tell you to do? Some of you know, it's like, hey, say 20 Hail Marys, 50 Our Fathers and, you know, do this and stop doing that. But there's something that you would do, 50 Hail Marys. It is really hard. It goes against the human nature of daughters of Eve and sons of Adam to just receive grace. It just it just goes against it goes against how we're wired. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. There in the spring of eighty-seven in my dad's house when I lived with my dad after the attempted suicide and I was there rebuilding my life, listening to K-Wave, reading my Bible. It was there in John 19 when I read, it is finished, that the epiphany through the Holy Spirit came to me where all that time I'm trying to earn God's favor. So like, okay, I had a good week, so I've got money in the bank. Oh, I had a bad Friday, I lost all my money, and now I'm upside down on my credit card of morality with God. And I literally, like would go to St. Francis, Holy water twice. Some of you went to my mom's memorial at St. Francis, the holy water in the back, double dip. Because I was good for five days, and it all went bad on Friday. And so I'm there on Saturday by myself, double dip. Just trying to do more good than bad. That's just world religions. That's a Hindu, that's a Muslim, that's Judaism, that's all those things. Only Christianity is the uniqueness of the gospel of grace where we receive forgiveness unconditionally. Against you I've sinned, and Nathan says, and you've been forgiven. So we have to receive it. So worship generation, just a reminder tonight, body of Christ, that we receive our forgiveness. We can never earn it. Now, we want to be, go forward from it and learn from it, like Tom Brady looking like, why did I throw the interception? But we have to receive it. We, ha- we have to grow in the knowledge of grace and how it's applied, which brings us to the third thing. So we have the confession, we have the cleansing and forgiveness, and now we have the comfort of grace. Because there in verses 24 and 25, after the child dies from the adultery, we're told that David comforted Bathsheba, and they had an- she became pregnant and another child. And we're told by the Holy Spirit that the Lord loved this child. Now, how much grace is that? That's Uriah's wife. You married her. And God blesses you with another child. He took the first child. That child could have, that's between all of them and the Lord. You get older, right? You realize, like, you know what? I don't have to explain it theologically. That's just between David, Bathsheba, and the Lord. That's their business with God. Why the child, I can give you good reasons why the child wouldn't live. But, you know, if God takes a child, then he takes a child. And that's between them and the Lord. But what's amazing in the story is he gave them another child. Not just any child. Not like an Adonijah or an Absalom or an Amnon, like those other David sons from the other women. No, but through Bathsheba, God gave the world, not just David, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the wisest human being who ever lived and gave us 31 chapters that we call the Book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and ecclesiastes he gives a song of solomon when he's young and in love and like he's getting married like the wedding we're at last night you know he gives us proverbs when he's getting lived life and made mistakes and learned from it he knows like smart people and foolish people and all things you need to learn 31 chapters of proverbs the greatest wisdom written you should read proverbs every day pretty much you should it's a good idea it'll help you with making good decisions in life i try to then he gave us Ecclesiastes when he's an assistant living and the telling girl like, oh man, all this money, these kids are going to wreck it. Oh my goodness. Oh, catch your bread upon many water, you know, like like why you can. And sure enough, because in Ecclesiastes he says, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he said, you know what? You, you should just give it away and sow bountifully because you might have a son that doesn't know how to manage it and they wreck it all, which is exactly what Rehoboam did. Because Solomon had gold shields, he dies. Rehoboam doesn't serve the Lord. He's got bad counselors. He ends up, uh, the Pharaoh comes and takes his gold shields. He gets bronze shields and he can't sleep at peace at night. He has to put them, he lock them away every night in his safe. So every morning, he roll out the bronze shields. Look, bronze shields. That's a fading glory. That's a, that's a downward spiral. That's not an upgrade, that's a downgrade. And then he can't even sleep at night. Put them in the safe, pack them up, put them in the safe. That's what Solomon talked about in the end of his life. And what did Solomon say? The whole matter is this, to fear God and obey his commandments. And he kind of threw in the bonus for the younger people, seek the Lord while you're young before the days grow old and evil and you take no pleasure in him. The wisest man that ever lived is the child that God gave to David and Bathsheba. That God ordained to be the next king of Israel. When those promises were made to David that we saw recently about the everlasting kingdom coming from, from him, it would start with Solomon. The kingdom was only unified for two kings, essentially. Well, Saul had the kingdom, but he's a Benjamite. But from the tribe of Judah, the nation of Israel had two kings that ruled the entire nation, David and his son Solomon. And as we go forward in this book, we're going to see just how wicked some of David's sons were. Because when you're a king, you got lots of wives and lots of sons, and you got lots of princes, and they all want power, and it just goes bad. It's a like we said, it's like telenovela, which is a Spanish way of saying soap opera. It just goes bad. But in the midst of when all went bad, there in the palace, and all this conniving and conspiracies, like a Chinese soap opera or Korean K drama, all this conniving with money and this and that, and people positioning for power, and the fifth prince and the third prince and the second princess in this kingdom and that kingdom. It's human history. In the midst of it, there's Solomon, beloved of the Lord, set apart by the Lord the son of Bathsheba. And when it all falls apart after David steps into eternity, and as he's stepping into eternity, Solomon is the one that God chooses to be king, to be a great king. And in spite of his failures, he's a great king. He's an incredible king. So I love that this story doesn't end with this, that when the first child died, and david fasted and wept and you know he's dead he's not come back to me i'm going to go to him and then like if you just started if we just went from that verse like verse 23 ends and go to verse 26 now joab fought against rabah the people of and you'd be like well that's the way it goes david that's what you get you sin like you know legalistic people you deserve it you sin you stop with the wife you murder him. you do this and that that's what you get your baby died you get nothing it's all bad for you you're a bad man just jump off the cliff and never, jump off the pier and never come back, you know? Some people are like that. People's in the church. The, the church is so good at executing their wounded. Isn't that why we love Pastor Chuck so much, by the way? Was there ever a more gracious man in ministry than Pastor Chuck? I us talk with Jennifer about this today. Because we were talking about pastors that have fallen, and Chuck seemed to give every one of them a soft landing at Big Calvary to try and figure it out and go forward. Praise God for people like that. There are some of like, no, you, no, you, go jump off the pier and never come back. That's not the Lord. And that's why it's so important to give us verses 24 and 25. No, another child was born. Because amazing grace is amazing grace. And beloved of the Lord is beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord isn't limited to Solomon. It's for Bathsheba and David rebuilding their lives and being married and going forward with their relationship for the rest of their journey for the next 30 years so they both step into eternity. Beloved of the Lord isn't limited to Solomon. It's for all Israel to realize this is the heart of God, that when you confess your sins, he will cleanse you and he'll even bless you with grace and going forward. This is the heart of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ for the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved of the Lord that that which was sin can somehow be redeemed, that a relationship born in adultery with murder can somehow be redeemed and a child can be brought forth not of the flesh to death, but of the spirit to life and be called beloved of the Lord. Body of Christ, worship generation, this is the most encouraging. These two verses are so critical to this story. Because like it says in Ezekiel, God said, I take no... Pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't have a big hammer just waiting to hammer us. He's got open arms waiting to cleanse us, get us back on track and bless us and get us going forward till the journey's done. This is the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ, male and female. To recognize our failures, to confess them, to receive the forgiveness and cleansing God offers by grace, and to receive even the blessing of grace that goes beyond it. When you feel like when Satan tempts us to despair, when you realize that God's a blessing God and he has a plan to go forward and he's still gonna bless us and take us forward. Things might be different, they always are, but he's a blessing God. We've been talking about how God blesses us as we've been going through the life of David. Even in his worst moment, God's still a blessing God. For Solomon is beloved of the Lord because the human race marred in sin is beloved of the Lord. And amazing grace comes through the Heavenly Father who gave us a son.